Man, Jay, it is really nice to see Wolverine back after that whole adamantium getting ripped out thing. It really is, Miles. What's he been up to since he left the team anyway? Ah, you know, the usual. Fighting, waxing poetic, devolving, having his own ongoing title. Ooh, and I think that there were some hijinks at some point with uh, Landau, Luckman, and Lake. Oh, yeah, those guys from Madripoor. Among other places. What's their deal again? Well, they're an interdimensional holding company and law firm. Sounds handy. Oh, and they're also into some complicated prophecy-type stuff, but, you know, all in the line of work. Mm, but who isn't these days? You'd think that the volume of time travel that goes on around them would quash that stuff, but no. So what's Landau, Luckman, and Lake's prophetic jam? Well, they are preparing for the arrival of this messiah named uh, Mithras. Mithras? Long story, kind of a Conan thing. The important part is that he is supposed to usher in an intergalactic golden age, and some of LLNL's agents think that he might be... Wolverine? Deadpool. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 273 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And we welcome ourselves back to this show because we've been off having adventures on other shows. And also on this show. We haven't actually been away from this show, but we've been doing other stuff in between. We have been very busy. We have. Uh, so I had a couple of guest spots. First off, I was on the wonderful podcast, Tighten Up the Defense. That is the T Teen Titans and Defenders podcast. I was in the second annual Halloween special, Tales from the Haunted Disco Barn 2. Uh, it was a scripted sort of horror anthology, heavy main accent, Lovecraftian thing, and it was a ton of fun. And I was also on the Exiled episode, part of their big multi-part finale of their live Exiles-related uh, role-playing game, the Assault on Camelot Eternal Operation Boars episode, as um, Professor Charles Dracula, he's sworn to protect a world that stakes and fears his kind. It was pretty great. Is he also sexy? I mean, inherently. And Jay, you were on a thing too, right? I was. I was on the Fantasticast, which those of you who look for shows similar to ours but other comics might um, have stumbled across. They've actually been around for somewhat longer, I think. I, in fact, I know. Uh, talking about a Marvel team-up issue featuring both the Fantastic Four and Marvel's Merry Mutants. And I've also, I, I should also take this opportunity to plug something that, that you can listen to that does not have my voice but has my writing on it and it'll be out very soon, and that is Thor Metal Gods from Serial Box. It is an audio-first serialized novel. Um, I am one of four co-writers on it. It is mostly cosmic Asgardian stuff, but I will say that there are there are definitely um, definitely some mutants in there, including at least one whom I at least was very very excited to get to write, and definitely a few Easter eggs for for the, for those of you familiar with that end of the Marvel universe. I'm really excited about it. As a Thor fan and as a fan of your writing, everything you've told me about it makes it sound awesome. It's been really, really, really fun. Um, so yeah, that's going to be out December 12th, and I will drop a link to it in the Visual Companions from Serial Box. In fact, we will link to all of those things in the Visual Companion, and you can hear our voices more than you ever wanted to. So much. You'll be hearing our voices in your dreams, in your nightmares. And speaking of nightmares where you hear voices because you're part of a big techno-organic hive mind, we are on episode three of three of the X-Men's 1994 crossover, The Phalanx Covenant. So, you mentioned big techno-organic hive mind nightmares, and I gotta say, covering this just as all of the you know, dystopian Facebook stuff is ramping up and up and up again feels like Either kismet or or just sort of extra awful. The Facebook Covenant. Well, no, like I seriously feel like we're 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 living the the entry to this. Except instead of Stephen Lang and Cameron Hodge, it's going to be Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos. That seems surprisingly plausible, huh? And now I'm just imagining Mark Zuckerberg wearing tiny underwear and having big wires coming out of his head, floating around in techno goo, and it's disturbingly easy to picture. Actually, is that not his default state? 
I don't know. Never met the guy. But in that we are in our third episode, let's talk a little bit about what's happened in previous portions of The Phalanx Covenant. And boy, have there been a few. There have been two, in fact, and you can listen to both of those in the immediately preceding two episodes of this podcast, uh, part one and part two, which are episodes 271 and 272. For those of you who don't want to do that or just want a refresher, here's what you missed. The Phalanx, a group of anti-mutant humans who thought it'd be a good idea to merge with the alien techno-organic remains of deceased new mutant warlock in order to kill mutants better. Yeah, so they've started their multi-techno-organic tendrilled attack on the X-Men in particular and the planet in general. Thankfully, there are a whole, whole lot of X-Teams and X-Men to stop them because it's the 90s. Banshee and the White Queen, over in Part 1, Generation Next, found out that the X-Men had been kidnapped and replaced with Phalanx duplicates, so they led a small team to rescue the next generation of mutants from a Phalanx base. Now, here's why the Phalanx was after that next generation of mutants, aside from its general genocidal tendencies. See, the Phalanx can currently absorb the bodies and minds of humans into itself, um, making them part of its hive mind and using their bodies as fuel— but they can't absorb mutants, so they intended to practice on mutant kids who just manifested until they'd figured it out enough to absorb the clearly much more advanced X-Men. Thankfully, Banshee and Emma were successful and are now hanging out with a handful of the teenagers who will soon make up Generation X. That's not the people born between 1965 and 1980. We're talking about the upcoming 5th X-Team and 6th X-Team book. Although based on the characters' ages at the start of the series and the series' start date, all of those characters would also have been members of Generation X, with the possible exception of M, because her body is currently being operated by two younger characters. Banshee had also let all the non-captured mutants know what was up, hence what's up in the other two chapters. In Phalanx Covenant Part 2, Life Signs escaped Phalanx, Phalanx member and kinda sorta reborn version of deceased new mutant Doug Ramsey and or Warlock, Doug Locke, captured Forge, Cannonball, and Wolfsbane to foil an even scarier Phalanx plot. A group of Phalanx, led by a robot dogman, were attempting to build a tower to summon the Technarchy, Warlock's exceptionally murderous alien species, to merge with the Earthbound Phalanx and absorb the whole planet. But thanks to the power of teamwork and a truly excellent pep talk from Nightcrawler, both the tower and the Phalanx's hatching ground were destroyed. No alien invasions for now, and no robot dogmen, and Forge got his groove back, kind of. We still have some problems, though. The X-Men remain very much kidnapped. And Stephen Lang and Cameron Hodge, two anti-mutant humans who are now part of the Phalanx, remain very much at large. As do most of the rest of the Phalanx. Do or does? How, how individual the parts of the Phalanx are is something that I'm, I'm really struggling with, and I think that's something we'll talk about more here, but it's, it's really inconsistent. Hive minds make grammar very confusing. They're a hive mind, but they've got a lot of individual parts and individual names and limited connectivity. They seem less like a hive mind than kind of a low-key autonomous collective. Oh, well that makes them sound much friendlier. No, no, they're, they're all terrible. They're just less organized. Well, let's jump into Final Sanction Part 1, which takes place in Wolverine number 85 with a truly phenomenal story title, Full Shred Thrash. I don't know what Full Shred Thrash means, but I do know that it just makes me think of Adam X with every part of my 90s inundated brain, and I feel pretty good about that. So, you know how I kept saying that Exodus looked like he had a guitar under his cloak? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what he does with it. Full Shred Thrash. Dig it. Full Shred Thrash is Full Shred Thrashed by the following folks. Writer Larry Hama, penciler Adam Kubert, inkers Mark Farmer and Joe Rubenstein, and colors Lovren Kinzierski and Joe Andriani. So, two things. First of all, you know how words stop sounding and looking like words once you've heard or said them a lot? Oh yeah. Well, Full Shred Thrash does that immediately. It kinda does. It turns from words into pure elemental awesome. I keep on thinking it sounds like a tongue twister, but it's not actually that hard to say, full shred thrash. It's just that it doesn't sound like anything after the first time you've said it, so it seems almost random. Second, wait a minute, Adam Kubert? 
That's right, Adam Kubert, the brother of Andy Kubert, and son of Joe Kubert for that matter. We've seen a lot of Andy Kubert's work in X-Men, and I know, Jay, you're a big fan. I like him too, but I gotta say, Adam Kubert, I think I like his style maybe even better. He's got this more detailed look, his faces tend to be more varied, and there's this just sort of liquid flowing style to the whole thing that I find really, really appealing. As always, how much of that is the inks and how much of that is the pencils, it's hard to truly say, but the art in this issue is freaking good. He's got a bit of Gene Ha to him, although I, likewise, I'm not sure if that's so much the pencils as the inks. I think I'm also seeing it because the color palette in here is very much a slightly more saturated version of the palette of The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. Yeah, that is totally, totally true. Speaking of which, the colors in this issue are just gorgeous. I mean, Kinsarski in particular is, is a fantastic colorist, but um, yeah, these guys are, are doing an amazing job. Something you really, really start to see in this era, kind of before the digital coloring age becomes a big thing and everyone gets excited about gradients, is the sudden expanse and range that printing technology is giving people. Very much. I don't know, Kinsirsky, as part of Digital Chameleon, was kind of at the forefront of that whole revolution, just in terms of what comics colors could be. Yeah. So as for the story... We saw Cyclops and Jean very briefly in Generation Next. They holo-called into the mansion just as everything was going to shit, and Banshee told them they should probably head to Muir Island to meet up with Professor X. So as the issue opens, that's what they're attempting to do. Now, for a brief previously with them, they are just recently returned from their would-be honeymoon, which actually ended up being a psychic trip into the future for 12 years to raise baby Cable. They also did that whole Sunset Grace thing, but that's much less relevant, so we won't worry too much about that. And as they get to Muir Island, as they get there to reunite with Xavier, who, as it turns out, has already left to go hang out in Life Signs, the two-page spread that we first see that shows Muir Isle is amazing. It is covered with phalanx flesh. There are these almost fungal growths and tendrils and towers covering all the structures and these pillars and spires and tentacles that just turn to phalanx faces and bodies that are all integrated with hands and feet and phalanx bits everywhere just attacking and wrapping around the plane that Scott and Jean are in. It is just immediate carnage it really just shows the phalanx as this overwhelming like fungus of techno-organic death this is i think a weakness of the phalanx covenant as an event not not the strength of the the description like what miles is describing is gorgeous it's incredibly cool but the fact that we don't get that sense of scale and mutability in the phalanx until the last story the phalanx is important here, but it's not really the center of the story in the way that it's the center of the other two. And especially, I, I feel like it should have been at its most impressive in Life Signs. Yeah, I agree. Life Signs should have been the best part of the phalanx covenant, given what it had to work with story-wise. And it ended up, um, not that. Well, it should have been the coolest looking part of the phalanx covenant and the one that most was most focused on really conveying the scale and threat of the phalanx. Agreed. But at least this story's awesome. What's also awesome is the fact that the three phalanx entities, nodes, whatever here, are named Egon, Nikotha, and Larissa. I love how random those names are. Like, I know part of that is they want to make it clear that humans of all types and backgrounds have joined the phalanx, but it just seems like they picked a bunch of random names out of a bucket. Like, Jay, do you remember that old, like, D&D first or second edition set that our friend Allison found at Goodwill that one time? And it had those Yes, characters? I was actually thinking about that today. Um, one of the characters was named Gorp. And the other two were Waldo and Apache. We found these handwritten character sheets that were probably from like the 70s or something. And the characters were Gorp, Waldo, and Apache. And based on the types of handwriting and how old the different people who made the character sheets seemed to be, like we had this whole story of who we thought they were, the players. And by God, we played those characters. <laughs> sure did. Uh, anyway, Waldo, Gorp, and Apache aside... We start out among the gorgeous art, also also with some incredibly iffy, unintended innuendo from Cyclops as their plane is about to crash. Hang on, Gene, I'm going down hard. Scott, bro, your bedroom talk really needs some work. I don't really understand why he's using the first person singular here, but okay. You know, so the largest attacking phalanx as they do crash is just 
so cool looking. We're going to talk a lot about the art in this issue. He's this enormous muscular monstrosity from the waist up, but just these thin little cables and tendrils from the waist down connecting him to the big mass of phalanx. It's that anatomical impossibility, the fact that those little tentacles and wires should not be able to hold him up, that's one of the things that makes the phalanx just so unsettling. Now, this is also a place where I was going to say the colors make a huge difference, too, because the ways the phalanx interacts with its environment are much, much more evident in this issue than, than they've been previously, and I think a lot of that is down to the colors. Agreed, yeah. The other thing that's worth noting about the phalanx here is that these three personas it has are connected to one another. They're, they're, they're separate minds, but they're, they're connected, but they are not connected to the big hive mind. Yeah, and I got the impression that was largely geographic. Like, at one point, Larissa does merge with Muir Island's computers to upload some stuff to Phalanx HQ. That's something that's never fully made clear in the Phalanx Covenant, just how the hive mind works, you know, what its limitations are. We know it has some limitations. We know that it can get broken down when X-Men blow stuff up a lot, but the details aren't really there. I feel like if this was Jonathan Hickman written, there would just be these, like, six-page-long descriptions of exactly how their uploads and downloads worked. The thing is, if it were Jonathan Hickman written, it would have the context of communications technology in 2019. This is the Phalanx on dial-up. Yeah, very, very good point. Oh man, now I just imagine them all talking like dial-up modems, and that's horrible, and we should not use that voice effect. <laughs> Thanks in advance, Matt. Anyway, so they do indeed crash, and Scott and Jean are fighting for their lives. They quickly realize that the telepathic communication they normally use to talk to each other, that's not going to work, because the phalanx can pick up on that. So things are looking pretty dire, if only they had some help incoming in this book titled Wolverine. You mean like a bunch of scrappy little badger motherfuckers? I mean, ideally, it's the natural predator of the phalanx. Well, we don't have any actual badgers, but we do have um, a, a man named Harry Tabershaw, and Harry Tabershaw's airplane um, is a very old plane. In fact, it's from World War II, and it's too low-tech for the phalanx to detect. And in that plane is something else pretty low-tech, and it's also been around since well before World War II, and that is Logan, who is here with some of his best grumpy narration. The last time I jumped out of a burning C-47, it was over Normandy and the sky was full of Nazi flak. But that's another story. Right now, something that crawled out of a psycho's nightmare is doing the back-end creep on some of my favorite people. Time to pop silk! The, the back-end creep? Hang on, Gene. It's time for the back-end creep. This is either a really ill-conceived dance move or, uh... Anyway, back-end creep aside, I really love when Wolverine drops weird asides about his past. Especially, and that's not the case with this one, but especially ones that we can't confirm as having actually happened. Like, I feel like that's how you do Wolverine backstory. Yeah, like, his backstory was endlessly fascinating in the 90s, and I think part of that was that as much as they just kept giving us more and more of it, for every question they answered, there were two more. It was very much like The X-Files, but yelling a lot and with knives sticking out of its hands. Oh, damn, now I'm thinking about Darren Morgan's X-Men. Dear God, that would be... that would be something... Anyway, Wolverine does pop silk as he dives out of Harry's plane, which means he, uh, you know, unfurls his, uh, his parachute. And Larissa, one of the phalanx, catches him midair, at which point he just shreds her face into tons and tons of pieces with his still very sharp bone claws. And there's such a great image as all of those little fragments of face, even though, you know, there are like 12 of them, they're all connected to the mass with little tendrils, and each one of them has one word of the threat that she throws at Logan. And he's just got this look of aw shit on his face that's delightful. One of the things implied by the phrase pop silk, at least based on Wolverine's usual lexicon, is that it's going to come flying out of his knuckles. <laughs> I mean, if he were an actual spider, it would fly out of his butt. An actual spider as opposed to the non-spider he doesn't pretend to be? Well, spiders pop silk. Some of them even use it as parachutes. I bet Spider-Man does that. Pop silk out of his butt to use as a parachute. They had a team up once. It was really sad and depressing. Spider-Man accidentally killed someone. One time they switched bodies in the Ultimate Universe. Oh yeah, that, that was a whole thing. And then Spider-Man told the X-Men that everyone hated them not because they were mutants, but because they were assholes. 
was he wrong? I mean, seriously. He was absolutely not wrong. Anyway, Cyclops saves Logan from silk popping or whatever by announcing that he's going to aim his optic blast high and actually aiming it low, because the phalanx are very good at overhearing battle banter, be it telepathic or verbal. And so Scott and Gene and Logan get a reunion. It's the first time they've seen each other in 10 issues of our time and 12 years of Scott and Gene's time. I don't know that they would really do that these days, you know, to keep such a popular character away from all of the characters from the team he's most associated with. I mean, okay, Logan was dead for years recently, but old man Logan was around during that time in the main Marvel universe, so it kind of almost didn't count, you know? Yeah, I don't know. It feels like things are so much more tightly choreographed now, or at least so much more tightly organized around crossovers. I don't know if you'd really have the room for a character as central as Logan to go off and basically do his own thing in his own book, on his own, without appearing in central titles as much. And I think now, too, there's more acknowledgement that you generally can't actually make the timelines quite sync up, so less conscious attempt to try. Wolverine can be in his own book on his own and 30 other titles a month. Mm-hmm. But here, like we were saying, these characters haven't seen each other in a while, and Logan recognizes the light in Jean's eyes as older, which kind of doesn't make sense, but is also sort of a beautiful statement and really does fit the just over-the-top everything of Larry Hama's writing. Like, his action's over-the-top, but his emotions are also over-the-top, and I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's such a line, though. <laughs> yeah, well... Thankfully, we now have more cavalry because Cable shows up, who, by the way, waits to show up until Cyclops says the word Cable in an unrelated sentence, which I really appreciate. I also appreciate that Cable is perhaps the widest I have ever seen him, certainly the widest non-Liefeld version of him I've ever seen. He's got straps and pouches and pads and giant, giant guns. One gun is so big he can't even carry it. It's like attached to this sort of track over one of his shoulder pads so that it has to sort of ratchet up and down to change its bearing, this is the book for excess. Give us more excess, Larry Hama. Give us all the excess. And also Adam Kubert, I suppose. Yeah, I think a lot of this excess is coming from Adam Kubert. I really dig that Cable is huge, but he's huge in proportion to the other characters. It's not that everyone's huge, it's just that Cable's really damn big. Yeah, he seems to be a full two feet taller than Wolverine, which I guess means Cable is seven foot three, which, uh, yeah, that tracks. That seems about right. He probably wears elevator shoes. And pretty quickly, as the four of them continue to fight the phalanx, Cable starts to have flashbacks to his childhood. Logan at one point says, I hear you, Red, to Jean, because his nickname for her is Red, and that makes Cable start thinking about Slim and Red, his surrogate parents back in the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. And it is so just exciting knowing that these characters are pretty soon going to all have to actually talk about this shit. Scott and Jean, meanwhile, are seeing Cable for the first time since they were literally ripped away from him in the future, and this is really, really hard for them. They don't know if he knows that they're the people who raised him. They don't know if they can tell him without fucking up the future, so they're trying not to betray any of this, and in the meanwhile, having, you know, all of the feelings at once. Uh, it's great, because of course, they've already had the conversation about, you know, yes, Cyclops is Cable's dad, Madeline Pryor was his mom, Gene helped raise him when he was a baby, everybody knows that, but the slim and red thing, that was never made clear, which I always forget when I'm reading this. Yeah, there's a hint at it in the issue immediately preceding the wedding um, with, with Scott's bachelor party, where he and Cable have a fight in the danger room. You get the sense that Cable is starting to see some kind of potential connection, but it's definitely not confirmed for him yet at that point. And at that point, Scott hasn't done it yet and doesn't know it's going to happen. Well, anyway, there will presumably be more time to figure out these things later because right now, giant robots everywhere. So the characters take a break from the fight and check in about what's going on. Apparently, Professor Xavier, who is, of course, on Muir Isle with Excalibur, when he had to leave to go deal with the Life Signs plotline, he told Wolverine and Cable to show up on Muir to figure out what was up and rescue the captured X-Men. Xavier had no idea that Scott and Jean were around. I guess he figured he would just leave them on their honeymoon where clearly everything was going to be completely normal. So they're basically a bonus. This is, this is sort of an 
a, a thrown together team up. The, the pretext is a little bit iffy, especially considering all of the X-Men who are just kind of hanging out over the course of life signs. But I'm OK with it because the dynamic we get out of it is so, so good. Agreed. Yeah, this is one of those things where you stop worrying about logic and you just go with the awesomeness of it, uh, which is to say it's a story from the 1990s. Well, and this is the section of the Phalanx Covenant that's really about the characters in it. Generation Next is about laying the groundwork for a team. It's about that foundation. Life Signs is about the nature of the Phalanx. And to an extent, you know, the mystery of Douglock. This story, though, is about Scott and Jean and Logan and Nathan and their dynamics with each other yeah, as individuals and as a group. It's pretty great, yeah. I mean, you'd figure that the Wolverine Cable portion of the crossover would just be all guns and claws, and we certainly get lots of those. But yeah, like we were saying earlier, it's some of the best grasp of the characters. It's some of the best character exploration. You know what I particularly love about this issue, this Wolverine issue? What's that? The connection that we see the most, or that we see exhibited the most and still not explored that much, is actually between Gene and Nathan. That's something that I think has been really underserved by non-future timelines, because we see, we've seen Cable's dynamic with Cyclops develop intensely over the years. We'll see it continue to a lot. We'll see a lot of them interacting. We see very, very little of that with Cable and Gene. The only other point I can think of where it's this front and center is during the search for Cyclops. Yeah, yeah, I think you're, uh, you're right, actually. And it's damn nice to see that here. It is, because she, she and Scott were very much co-parents in the future, but she is the telepath. And that's a connection that she and Nathan have that's unique to the two of them within that family. That's very much, very much part of things and very much present and part of why they're so close in the future. And seeing that emphasized and seeing that explored here is very cool. Yeah, 100%. What's also cool is what the phalanx are up to while our heroes are checking in about what's going on in the plot. Because, like you were talking about earlier, Jay, these phalanx are not fully merged with the hive mind. They're too far away or something like that. And so one of them, Larissa, uses the Muir Island computers to send the data back to Lang, back to headquarters, and spout out some glorious, glorious techno nonsense. Jay, do you want to do this or shall I? Submerge into ether matrix. Go digital. Set protocols. Send data. Transfer phalanx core central. Completed. Yeah, so that's basically my day job in the IT industry. Pretty much exactly that. Word for word, weirdly enough. You use dial-up too? Yeah, yeah, it's just uh, you don't even hear it after a while. But as Larissa does get to Phalanx headquarters in the Citadel, she sees Stephen Lang, you know, the former Sentinel creator slash merge E with the Master Mold, doing some suspicious stuff with a captured Psylocke of the X-Men. And Lang freaks out. He's been found out doing something he's not supposed to be doing, and so he almost kills Larissa as she returns to Muir Island, at which point she reports that something's up to her buddies. Well, not only that, but for her to upload... Her information requires some degree of, of back-and-forth sharing, which means that she might be able to find out what Lang's up to. That's what he's freaking out about when she comes back. Exactly. It's not what she saw, it's what she might pull out of his head. Yup. But the heroes don't know about any of this because they are coming up with a plan. Cable and Jean, as the telepaths, are going to be the telepathic distraction. Since the phalanx are kind of a psionic entity, it's not terribly clear. But it's so heartwarming because Cable, remember, is brand new to his powers at this point. He's only just starting to control them. And so... Seeing Jean sort of teach Cable how to use his telepathy takes us right back to her as Red in The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, teaching him how to use his powers to hold the techno-organic virus in check. It is so heartwarming. Well, that takes us back, and the visual flashbacks to that take us back. But this is an issue that uses those echoes really, really well, and has them ricocheting through the present well, and has the emotional impact of those echoes really, really evident. Meanwhile, Cyclops and Wolverine sneak in to steal the lab's data core from the Phalanx and do a little bit of catching up of their own on the way. Heads up, Scott. We're on deck. What's with you? 
Acting like you've been away for two years instead of two weeks. More like twelve years, Logan. You've been practicing them non-sequiturs? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, Cyclops doesn't actually say maybe, but he might as well. I love their banter. Hama also gets Cyclops and Wolverine's banter very well. Like... I know there are many reasons we don't cover the Wolverine series, and I think that's necessary, but I need to just reread all of Hama's run soon. It's so good. No, absolutely. There are a lot of reasons we don't cover it, but lack of quality and lack of interest are not among them. It's a really good series. It highly, highly recommended. So, Gene and Cable are doing their telepathic thing on the astral plane, and... It is one of my favorite versions of the Astral Plane, which is to say the one where all the characters are dressed up in sort of iconic, like, gladiator psychic armor and stuff, and it's all monocolored and translucent, and everyone's proportions are a little bit exaggerated. It's so cool. First of all, I love the way the colors are used in this scene. Second, I really love the fact that Jean's Astral Plane psychic headgear is modeled after Xavier's. Like, it's very consciously borrowed from him. Yeah, I noticed that too, and that makes so much sense. Yeah, it, it really does, and it's not laziness. Like, it's very deliberately a reference, and it, it works very, very well. But as this is going on, what with all the psychic bonding, Cable is starting to realize, yeah, Jean is actually Red. She's the woman that raised him in the future. And this is kind of freaking him out, which allows the phalanx that they're psychically fighting to merge into one being and attack the fragmented pair. And it's such a good metaphor. Like, Jean and Cable can't merge, but the phalanx can. Does Cable actually know for sure that she's Red? Because it seems like he's thrown off by the references and the parallels, but Jean kind of tries to explain it away by saying that, you know, oh, their memories were just overlapping and open to each other because of of the merge. And I wasn't sure if she was confirming what he suspected or denying it there or just kind of hand-waving it. But neither of them brings it up or addresses it directly at this point. But the point is, their astral battle goes badly since Cable's so distracted, and they get thrown back out into the physical world. And Cable's like, I am not going back in there. And just as Gene's like, Cable, you can't give up. He's like, I'm not going to give up. I'm, quote, getting physical. And there are these great motion lines as he goes from lying on his back to standing straight upright, holding this giant goddamn gun that's the size of him, which, as you will recall, is very large indeed in this issue. Like, again, this is just exactly what a Wolverine book or a Cable book should be doing. Just turn the volume to 11 and leave it there. Also, just just yelling really inappropriate things. Ideally. And since... Cyclops and Wolverine have successfully retrieved the data core from the Muir Island lab amid their banter. Cable just shoots everything. He just uses his gun to blow up basically everything in all of Muir Isle. I am so sorry, Moira. You know, it happens. What really what really gets me, the, the detail we did not cover is why the Phalanx is on Muir Isle. They want Xavier's X-Men information, but they also want the research there because they're trying to to find out more about carbon-based life so they can absorb it all and this is the preeminent genetic research facility what's implied here is that this is not only the preeminent human and mutant genetic research facility but the preeminent everything genetic research facility and i think that's awfully silly because look humans are a very 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 small fragment of the carbon-based life on earth no, Myra's got it all. She's got, like, an entire banana slug wing. Of course she does. And then an entire other wing for the banana slugs with the persistent and severe psychiatric disorders that she's wildly unqualified to treat. Exactly. So... Thankfully, Harry shows up in his archaic plane, which Jean holds telekinetically into place so they can all get to it. But... Once they get on there, Cable's still pretty beaten up. He tried to stay back to save them all, and his techno-organic stuff was a real weakness. The phalanx super fucked him up. And it's kind of hilarious and also, again, heartwarming as Scott and Jean are all, like, nervous and concerned about whether Cable's okay. Because he's Cable. Logan, for his part, is is kind of jealous. I'm okay, too. Guess I'll mosey up front and see to Harry. Wow, Logan. 
But they're all off to the Phalanxes Tibetan base to free the X-Men because that was one of the things that they got from the Phalanxes data. That's where the X-Men are being held. And that takes us to cable number 16, the Phalanx Sanction, the final issue of all of the Phalanx Covenant. This issue is also written by Larry Hama. It's penciled by Steve Scroach or Scroke. It is inked by Mike Sellers and Matt Banning, colored by Marie Javins. So this, this artist is fine. He's kind of off-brand Adam Kubert, which again, is just fine. Now, the Cable series had mostly been written or co-written by Glenn Hurdling before this, but there'd been lots of switching around as far as who was writing, scripting, plotting, etc. It's sort of like Excalibur is in this era. Hurdling really sounds like something that a Star Wars character would say to refer to the, the young of their domestic animals. That's true. It, it really does. But like, oh, yes, you know, go, go, go shepherd the hurtlings into the enclosure so we can, I don't know, start a war with some stars or something. What do you think about having Hama take over this chapter from Hurtling to continue his work from the previous uh, chapter in Final Sanction? I mean, I think it's a really good move because more than any other section of the Phalanx Covenant, the this chapter is really driven by character dynamics. It's really, really voice heavy. And keeping the writer consistent makes that work in ways that it probably could with different writers. But I mean, Hama's got this down so cold, honestly. I, I think it it doesn't even make sense to have someone else pick up the second chapter. He's doing a good job on this. One of the things that's weird to me though is that the dynamics do shift a little bit between the issues, and we have kind of a much more juvenile Cable and Wolverine in terms of their dynamic um, coming into this issue. And I think part of that for me just is from the pencils. The pencils are a little more exaggerated, a little more caricature-ish, and so we have Wolverine and Cable in the whole just yelling all their words all the time as they bicker with each other. Some of it's certainly the dialogue, but I think the art really does bring it out. You also did a great job catching something that's usually my beat, but which I missed entirely here, um, which is about the airplane they're in. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I looked this up. So the narration says that they're in a DC-3, but I was like, hey, what the fuck? They were in a C-47 last time. I don't know anything about airplanes, but Wolverine specifically said C-47. Like, Chris Claremont wouldn't have done that. He knows airplanes. But it turns out, so does Larry Hama. Larry Hama knew a lot about military technology and stuff. According to Wikipedia, the C-47 was the military version of the civilian DC-3. So they're kind of the same plane anyway, so it kind of works. What I'm guessing then is that it's a DC-3 that Logan referred to as a C-47 because that's the model he was familiar with. That would make a lot of sense. Uh, anyway, um, after they finish bickering in the plane, what are our heroes up to? Well, they've dropped Harry off somewhere safe between issues, I hope, or possibly just dropped him out of the plane. By the way, did you wonder briefly at the beginning if he was like Harry's hideaway, Harry? Um, I remember that we saw him in the Shiva scenario issues of Wolverine that we covered a long time ago, so I did vaguely remember oh, he I was guess a, that's true. Yeah, different Harry. Lots of Harrys in the life of a very hairy man, Logan. Well, and he does at one point earlier say, you know, it's about to get hairy, Harry. So having hopefully dropped Harry off somewhere safe, uh, the team, whom I keep on trying to come up with a name for, and I keep on going back to Fantastic Four, which is clearly already taken. Anyway, these guys head to Tibet, where the Phalanx apparently hold up on Mount Everest. And Jay, you wrote in your notes that uh, part of why they fly the plane directly into the face of the Citadel may have to do with Scott's own history with aircraft. Yeah, so... I mean, if you look at X-Men, Scott basically spends his entire adult life getting increasingly cavalier about plane crashes. There's a great scene on the Morrison run where he just he's just like, yeah, I'm just going to crash this plane. I've, I've survived more plane crashes than any other mutant alive. Insurance usually takes care of it. <laughs> well, while the phalanx is dealing with the immediate damage, uh, the mutants clamber up the apparently unclimbable north face because thanks to telekinesis and planning and stuff, they're fine. However, they cannot use their powers for the ascent or the phalanx will sense them, so they've got to claw their way up. Now, Cable has technology that would let him port up, but because of his techno-organic virus, he is too vulnerable to the phalanx to go in alone. Impressively, while they are 
crawling up the sheer cliff face, clinging on by their fingertips and toes. Cable and Wolverine still manage to have a dick measuring contest, which is really impressive, but also, gentlemen, this is really not the time. Also, how is this even working? Like, I've done a little bit of bouldering. I'm not very good at it at all because I'm a total beginner, but it's super goddamn hard. And they're going up a partially inverted, incredibly tall, almost perfectly smooth cliff face. I mean, it's lampshaded a bit, as Cable says. This climb would be impossible for a normal human and nearly impossible for a mutant in top shape. But, like, even a mutant in top shape? I don't know, is that a callback to the Silver Age? Like, back when mutants were just tougher than humans in general? I I reject this, even in a book like this. I can no-prize this, but it's bad. Well, that's better than nothing. Alright, so, you've read The Adventures of Dr. McNinja, right? Oh, yeah. Remember how there was a character who could move his weak point throughout his body by focusing? Uh, yeah, I I do. Yeah. So, and you know how everyone's got way, way, way too much musculature in this era? True. Well, my theory is that they can shift their physical strength if they focus. And while we don't see it because they're wearing gloves and because no one spends that much time on hands at this point, they've got that kind of musculature in their hands. Like, these are characters who could cling to pretty much anything pretty much indefinitely, as we see pretty actively demonstrated later. Now, Cable's also got a metal arm, so that's that's helping him out here, presumably. And Logan's jamming his claws into the cliff face, but, like, his claws are bone now. You'd think they would shatter. Maybe it's a sandstone or styrofoam cliff. Oh, no, I assume he's using them, like, in, in handholds, like he's finding cracks and, and jamming them in for leverage. I don't know. It looks like he's just jamming them into the solid cliff. But... Anyway, I really do like this scene, despite my objections to its uh, realism, because so much time is spent focusing on just the difficulty of doing this climb without powers and, like, people almost falling and then figuring out if they can risk a tiny use of powers just to get somebody over uh, an overhang. It's really tense. Funny that you mention that, because this scene is actually what's on the cover of this issue, and it is my favorite cover of the entire crossover. It's the four characters. It's the only Phalanx Covenant cover with no Phalanx on it. It's just the four characters, and there's no fight. They're just reaching for each other as they're trying to work together to get up a cliff without losing anyone. They also have snazzy matching green jackets. They do. They do also have snazzy green jackets. They've also got, you know, reasonably well-drawn perspective, which is is something that the other covers generally lack because they're sort of big and chaotic and fights and, and rule of cool. But yeah, this this is my favorite cover because it deviates from the rest in so many ways and because it's so beautifully in doing so, pinpoints kind of the heart of the issue. And in that heart, Scott and Jean are understandably having a really hard time dealing with suddenly being reunited with their very much adult son after raising him as a child like a couple days ago as Scott starts. Gene, I look at Cable and all I see is the child we spent 12 years raising in the future. I'm afraid for him, Gene. No parent should ever have to go into battle with their own child by their side. It's hard enough to do your own job in the heat of a fight. I love the weirdness of their dynamic and the fact that it's all unspoken. Um, and also... The way Wolverine plays into that, because he has no idea what's going on, but he gives Cable a shovel talk anyway, and it's great. Um, So Jean briefly uses her powers to hoist Cable up part of the side, and he can't climb up, so he's left hanging on this this overhang, and he can can hold on, but he, he can't get himself up. And Wolverine realizes that while Cable can't climb up, he can jump onto Cable and climb up Cable, and then anchor a rope and hoist everyone else up. So they they all get up, and and Cable is last, and Wolverine has some words with him. Let me tell you something, bub. That lady back there is real special to me. And it sure looks like you're real special to her. So as far as I'm concerned, the slate is clean between us. But just one thing. You ever break her heart? I'm gonna finish what I started in Madripoor. They need to have one of those talks with Logan that, like parents have with the older kid when they're about to have a second child that the you still have all of mommy and daddy's love because love isn't finite and it's not commutative like that (laughs) right 
Well, speaking of uh, infinite commutative things, uh, back inside the Citadel, inside the Phalanx, Stephen Lang is actually doing his best to subvert the Phalanx's big plan of absorbing all organic life. Stephen Lang is also looking more and more human as the Phalanx Covenant progresses, which is fascinating to me. He's gone from being kind of a human torso coming out of the Phalanx, or actually first just a head, to a humanish torso coming out of the Phalanx, to now basically fully human-colored, and he wasn't human-colored until this point, um, and kind of a full body with either metal underwear or sometimes just a Barbie crotch. It's really unsettling. There's a lot unsettling about Stephen Lang and the Phalanx, and Lang keeps misdirecting Hodge. Lang knows that our heroes are climbing up that rock face, but he keeps telling Hodge, nah, it's impossible, don't worry about it. And he also has another tool in his toolbox. And that is Psylocke, who is his reluctant ally in this. She doesn't trust him, but she doesn't really have a choice or a better option, so she lets him do something really, really extreme. She lets him kind of overwrite her with phalanxiness, but he puts in a trigger such that when she and Cable get in a fight, her own will will reassert herself. But in the meantime, she's phalanxified. And this is kind of unclear because we know the phalanx can't absorb mutants, so it almost seems like it's a phalanx wraparound around Psylocke's body and mind. I'm not really sure what's up here, but it's cool, so let's just go with it. Oh, I actually thought it was pretty clear. I thought she specifically telepathically made herself accessible to their hive mind. Oh, okay. I mean, I guess that would make a lot of sense. She's the only telepath around that has been captured since Jean's free. Right, and Jean has specifically mentioned that the the phalanx's hive mind functions like a rudimentary sort of te- telepathy, which is part of why it's able to anticipate her actions based on her thoughts. Well... Anyway, our heroes do manage to get past Hodge, and they free Bishop, who uses his awesome energy absorption powers to absorb some phalanx, blow everything up, and free the other X-Men. And Wolverine just just really goes full Little Pete here. Come on, you gelatinous yahoos! I thought this was going to be a throwdown! You gelatinous yahoos. That's my favorite insult, at least of the week, probably of, of the month. Once she has engaged the X-Men, Psylocke snaps back to herself and channels the focused totality of Nathan and Jean's psychic powers through her to cut the Phalanx's psionic hive mind off completely. It is gone. The Phalanx can no longer connect to itself. And Stephen Lang, who literally never learns, still thinks he can figure out how to destroy the Phalanx and the mutants. It's still good. It's still good. It's only a little airborne. So the first step of this is that he does successfully trick Cameron Hodge into nuking all of the other phalanx nests for their energy, leaving only the Citadel, which Lang was in charge of holding together, so he just lets it drop. And the way the art shows just these big explosions coming from different parts of the planet as seen from space, I think the phalanx covenant overall has a problem with showing scale, but this page right here really, really gets it. You realize just how desperate Hodge is to sacrifice all of these enormous phalanx bases all around the world just to win this one battle. And that makes sense for Hodge. Like, even as part of a collective intelligence, he's defined by his vindictiveness. He's defined by spite. Well, and again, this is the chapter of the crossover that really conveys the scale of the phalanx in ways that none of the others do. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, there is one major critical flaw in Stephen Lang's plan, which is that he assumed that he could just let Cameron Hodge die and that Hodge would not do everything in his power to drag Lang with him down to hell, which he absolutely does. But as you might imagine, this being X-Men, we haven't seen the last of either of these characters, but we have for a little while at least. So yay, victory. It still weirds me out that Hodge's glasses stay intact. Yeah, well, I think they'll be broken again later, so no worries. We also haven't seen the last of the phalanx, partially because it's not just on Earth. On the other side of the galaxy, a mysterious techno-organic entity with big horns, red eyes, and very sharp fingers notices these developments with alarm. There is an emptiness. A void where once there was techno-organic sentience. Ah, our foothold in the outer rim... The yellow sun system with nine planets. It seems a more aggressive tactic is called for. Something more to the point. 
Now, the way that to the point is built up and the way it's shown, you know, in red in completely different, much larger lettering, it really seems like it's supposed to foreshadow something specific. It doesn't. It's just because this dude has horns and pointy fingers. He just likes pointy things. I bet he'd be friends with Strife. But this big cliffhanger, yeah, it's actually not followed up on again anytime soon. I mean, we'll see the phalanx again, specifically the pure phalanx, as they're called, a few years later in Uncanny X-Men. And then the phalanx are going to be the major antagonist in the big Annihilation Conquest event around 2008 or so. But yeah, the cliffhanger right here just doesn't really go anywhere because 90s. But it is still super ominous and super awesome, and so I'm not even mad. And... As we've said before, it is fairly relevant to some of the stuff in, in the current uh, Jonathan Hickman run on the X-Books, which, by the way, we are eventually going to be talking about, just not quite yet. You'll see. Keep listening. Yeah. So that's Final Sanction, and that's the Phalanx Covenant. We've now covered the whole thing. Jay, what did you think? I mean, I think the middle chapter was definitely the two towers of this series. The two towers, the book, not the two towers, the movie, because the two towers, the movie was actually pretty amazing. Yeah, the two towers, the book, like 90% poetry. Not in a good way. Just fucking elves singing and dancing and reciting things for pages at a time. This is bad, though, because now I'm going to piss off a whole, whole bunch of Tolkien people, and they're going to all come yell at me, and it's going to be bad, and I really can't hold my own against them. Tolkien fans, I respect your choices, I'm not real into the Two Towers book, but it's also been a number of years since I've read the series. I might appreciate it more now, and I respect your preferences. However, the second chapter of the Phalanx Covenant isn't that good. I'm, I, I, I feel like compared to the first and third, it feels really anticlimactic and it falls really flat and just doesn't convey s- scale in the ways that the others two do. The flip side of that is that the first and the third chapter are terrific. They're pretty much what I want from this event, the third in particular. Yeah, I completely agree. Final Sanction, like, as much as the solo books were the ones I was least into when I was a kid, Final Sanction blew me away, and reading it as an adult, it's the same. I think it's the best, and for exactly the reasons you were highlighting, Jay, there's just so much good character and character interaction work here. It's got such a great balance of being really engaging and really high stakes and really action forward and really character focused. It's great. And as far as that first part, well, we'll be diving into Generation X really soon, and I'm very excited about that. I love those characters. I really love that series. Yeah. I also love our listeners, and they've got questions. Aaron asks on Twitter, has there ever been a pregnant person on an X-team? There absolutely have. In fact, there have been several, most notably both Siren and Wolfsbane on the second to most recent X-Factor series, X-Factor Investigations. I mean, that might sound a little weird to have that much concentration of pregnant X-Men on one team, but to be fair, Wolfsbane's pregnancy first became a thing when she was in X-Force before she moved over to X-Factor, so I guess that's not that weird, and... They were both really interesting storylines that certainly went some places. It was also one of the more civilian-oriented of the teams, and so it was one where it made sense for pregnant characters to be staying on the team and participating on the team actively in ways that might have seen more pushback on other books. Speaking of, was Angel Salvatore active with the X-Men while she was pregnant? Like, I know she got in some fights and stuff, but that was, like, just unofficial activity, not official X-activity, right? She was still officially just a student at the Xavier School at that point. But, yeah, I mean, she was was a significant character in an X-Book, and she was definitely doing some badass fighting stuff. So there have been. Um, I'm not sure whether or not you count Madeline Pryor in that X-Men Alpha Flight crossover. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a whole thing. Um, I guess there was Haven, but she wasn't on an X team, and that was also very complicated. Yeah, and there have been a couple storylines involving fake pregnancies or pregnancy fake-outs heavily, heavily concentrated as they tend to be in the material written by Joss Whedon, which is one of my least favorite things about him as a writer. Fair enough. All right, so Hunter asks via email... While we often discuss the pop culture references within X-Men, do you have any favorite references to the X-Men outside of the comic book world? And if so, what are they? 
Oh man, I'm sure right after we record, I'm going to come up with like 12 more examples, but here are the ones that are in my head right now. So as much as I hate how shitty he is to cipher, I do love Sterling Archer's continual and detailed X-Men references in the show, Archer. Oh God, same, same. They are, the, the degree of detail is so fantastic. And while yeah, he's shitty to cipher, Archer would be shitty to cipher. He would not value cipher. Because, I mean, the whole joke is that Archer works at a spy agency and he's kind of bad at a lot, at a lot of stuff and has terrible values. That's right. Um, so this example is from comics, but not superhero comics, so I'm going to go with it. I really enjoy the X-Men logo on the winter jacket that Scott wears in the Scott Pilgrim comics. Honestly, that's probably at least a small part of why I identify more than I would like with that um, rather flawed character. So I don't I don't know that I have a favorite X-Men reference in pop culture, but I do have a least favorite X-Men reference in pop culture. Yeah? Yeah, so it's there's this one community episode where Evil Abed is who's from Abed from another universe. It's complicated watch community, it's terrific. Insults Britta um with a long string of 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 why she's dumb and one of them is her favorite superhero is X-Men. And it's really clear from context in the way it's written that what they're intending for him to be doing is like, aha, she's so dumb, she thinks that this name that's the name of the superhero team is the name of a character. Except the thing is, there is a character named X-Men, and Abed would unquestionably know that. And so the gag just doesn't work as played, and it doesn't work for the character, and also it's really cheap and annoying, and I really dislike fake nerd girl shaming nonsense anyway even when it's coming from a character who is explicitly evil and has the goatee to match so um my my personal no prize explanation for this which again is clearly not as it's written or played but it's what i have to tell myself to get through the day um is that um that evil abed is just really fucking judgmental about nate gray you know that's a reasonable thing to be judgmental about and and x-man is totally british type too yeah, valid. Uh, other references, there was a graffiti collective in New York City in the early 80s called the X-Men. I assume their name was a reference, but facts are very scarce, and um, since they were committing crimes, they didn't really talk a lot about the details. A rapper and all-around badass Jean Grey's name definitely counts and is definitely and specifically a reference. And of course, we will never cease to remind everybody of the fact that professional wrestler Cody Rhodes, a.k.a. Stardust, has in fact dressed up as a palette-swapped version of Mr. Sinister because not everything in the world is terrible. Was he even palette-swapped? I thought he just dressed up as Mr. Sinister at some point. It was sort of orange and black looking. We are a sinister-dressed and listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of sinister support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Look, it's the Angry Claremontian narrator! Into what fresh hell have you been thrust, Jay Wilson? Out of place, out of time, out of ideas. If only you had made better choices, but you didn't. And now you're here. You, Hendomitas, who for reasons you can't even begin to fathom, has turned up everywhere you've landed like a bad penny. Or perhaps something worse. And, uh, wow, wow, in the spirit of today's episode, the mic now goes to, uh, sexy Stephen Lang? I've kept more than one secret from you, Hodge. You know nothing of my current traitorous plans, but also nothing of my motivation to join the phalanx in the first place. That's right, you'd thought I was merely an anti-mutant bigot, but in reality, my time with the Master Mold awakened something within me. Something freaky. About robots. But it's so hard to get any privacy in this hive mind. No sooner am I about to techno my organics while staring at the gooey circuitry around me than Adam Payne arrives with an update about the Babel Spire. And just as my flirtations with Larissa are about to bear digital fruit, Michael Haida appears from out of a gelatinous hive wall to integrate new research data. But wait. I've missed something important. We're all in this together. Adam and Michael, what do you think about summoning the rest of the phalanx to the Citadel so we can truly know each other? Do you know what I mean? Oh, you, you do? 
That's why you joined the Phalanx, too? Well, to hell with these X-Men. Let's get techno busy. Does the Phalanx have HR? Uh, no, no, they uh, all got absorbed and overwritten. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode, and check out all of the other podcasts that we have been and will be on in the recent and coming weeks via the visual companion here. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, it's spoiler time. Hope you've been practicing your Kakoan, because we will be welcoming guest expert Chris Edelman, half of the Chris's on Infinite Earths, to talk House of X and Powers of Ten, Hickman, and the new Status Quo X. Meanwhile, Cyclops and Logreen. <laughs> Logreen. Logreen. <laughs> uh, we should probably save that for a tag. Logreen sounds like a flavor of Jello. <laughs> snacks. Logreen. It's Loganberries and Tangerine. And All right, hang on. I'm gonna Weasel this, Musk. But... <laughs> anyway. <laughs>